The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, and this is the second History Extra podcast for the month of June 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... It's often said that one of the distinctive features of Scottish soldiering is how much they write about it as much as the fighting. That was Edward Spears on the military side of Scottish history. The cause of Queen Caroline becomes a huge popular campaign around which everybody rallies. And that was Malcolm Chase on the events of the year 1820. The podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History Magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. If you haven't read it, you really ought to. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription, and there are details of the latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. You can also find us digitally. We have a Kindle edition, which is available direct from the Amazon website, and an iPad edition, which is available from the Apple newsstand. Also, if you want breaking historical news, you can find us on social media, facebook.com slash historyextra and twitter.com slash historyextra. Edward Spears, Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of Leeds, is co-editor of a new volume called A Military History of Scotland. I caught up with him to talk about the martial aspect of Scotland's stories. You've co-edited A Military History of Scotland, so the obvious first question is, is military history a particular, particularly important theme in Scottish history? Uh, military history is, is certainly a crucial theme in Scottish history. Um, Tom Devine once said that you know, the Scots were born fighting. Uh, a whole part of Scottish in, independence, Scottish identity, was, was carved out of uh, war and was sustained by war over a long period of time. And indeed, much of Scottish identity, even since the Acts of Union and the, of, of Parliament, um, has reflected the successes and achievements of her military forces. Okay. So does that mean that its, it's military history is, is more important to Scotland than to other nations of the UK? 
I think it's peculiarly important to Scots. Um, uh, for many centuries, uh, it had a profound effect on both the forging of Scotland as a kingdom, uh, both internally and protecting it externally, um, uh, and thereby securing its uh, identity. If you think of other parts of the United Kingdom, Wales, for example, the conquest was over relatively quickly. Um, Ireland, very different kettle of fish, um, also has a strong military tradition as well, and I've written chapters on, on that. So both those Celtic regions, somewhat different from Wales, uh, very much forged in war and affected by war. So, so where are the origins of this fighting spirit amongst the Scots then? Um, well, I think the, uh, the, the Scottish ways of warfare have been those of a small country adapting to her, its own circumstances and for, just trying to develop a distinctive way of warfare. Um, in many respects, this relied in the medieval period on cross-border raids, actually on battle avoidance rather than fighting battles. Uh, you know, Bannockburn was an exception rather than, a, than, a, than the rule. Um, a lot of guerrilla warfare, some combined castle and seaborne warfare in the Western Isles, very, very distinctive form of warfare there. Um, a reliance in Scotland upon readiness to trade territory for time uh, when it comes to facing major invasions, um, scorched earth policies, um, putting major social economic sacrifices, um, particularly in the borders and the Lothian regions, uh, for the sake of, uh, if not defeating an enemy, at least holding it at bay for long enough for it to become distracted and go elsewhere. Uh, so Scotland's had a long record of, of dealing with invaders from the Romans uh, right through to Oliver Cromwell. And is, is that, 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 that the very fact they've been faced by invaders and, and attackers for two millennia, is that, is that part of the reason why they have this martial spirit then? Is that, is that all part of the story? It's certainly part of the story, for sure. Um, uh, the martial spirit has evolved in different ways in different parts of the country. Um, we have a whole chapter on Gallic warfare in, in the volume, uh, looking at the uh, uh, continuing um, forms of conflict that pertained in the Highlands and Isles uh, right up to the early 17th century. Uh, again, there were other forms of conflict in the border regions, often between Scottish families as much as across borders, border reaving. And again, that, the, the, the history of the feud was very much etched in, in Scottish consciousness for long periods of time. And, of course, the country very often suffered from that. There were socio-economic consequences of uh, prolonged uh, fighting uh, in certain parts of the country. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a whole you know, tradition of warfare uh, going back in that way. And, of course, more recently... Of course, there were all the religious and ideological wars of the 17th and early 18th centuries, um, which again 
did a lot to forge the nature of the Scottish community that eventually evolved um, and the dominance of the Kirk and, and all the rest. So, uh, you know, Scotland's had, had its share of, of, of belligerent experiences and has been, you know, shaped accordingly. Mm. And yet you were saying earlier that the part of the story, certainly in the medieval period, is, is battle avoidance and, and guerrilla tactics. So how does that feed into that story then? If, if, if the Scots were sort of notably uh, martial in spirit, why were, mm. they, why were they keen to avoid fights? Well, because they're up against a far larger and uh, more powerful enemy. Uh, they had found that out when they faced the Romans. They certainly found that out when they faced Edward I, the hammer of the Scots. Uh, when his invasion came, that was a real invasion and Scotland suffered uh, massively all the way up the highlands under the, uh, uh, the power and the uh, force of uh, Edward I's armies. Um, very few armies resembled that that Scots thereafter had to face and even those of his grandson Edward III which easily routed the Scots whenever they faced them in battle, um, had the happy distraction of going off to fight in France. It was far more of a, uh, a concern in the Hundred Years' War than dealing with their northern neighbours. So from the Scottish point of view, um, your raids and guerrilla warfare were, was, an, was an easier and more profitable option um, than engaging these much uh, more powerful cavalry-heavy uh, armies that the English could put in the field and that the Scots would struggle to fight. The Scots were often very numerous in battle, often had very large armies, they could muster the host, the common army, um, but they weren't necessarily very well equipped. Uh, they always had a shortage of um, siege engines, for example, for conducting major sieges. Those were expensive. Um, they, were, they were draining on the morale and the commitment of some of those soldiers. And so they had very often had to take siege, they had to win sieges by stratagems, ruses, um, rather than simply bombarding down the walls and you know, bludgeoning the inhabitants into surrender. So siege warfare was a critical thing, and all across the borders of Scotland and England, you still see today the relics of those castles which were so prominent and critical for several centuries uh, between the two countries. So did the Scots see themselves as particularly ferocious warriors, say, in the, in the, in the medieval period in the 14th century when, you know, when Edward I was coming, coming up with his army? Did, did the Scots think of themselves as... As a, as a match to, to the English soldiers, and what did the English soldiers think of the Scots? Did they, did they see them as, as notable adversaries? Well, it's interesting because there are relatively few Scottish sources on the Scottish period. There are one or two, I mean, the, the first source on Bannockburn is 70 years after the event. It's largely on basis of oral history. Um, Blind Harry's writing on Wallace is, is a couple of hundred years after the event. So the Scots themselves um, don't have a great legacy of chronicles and things to work on. But the English chronicles do paint a picture of a very um, uh, savage and belligerent adversary north of the border. Uh, tales of, you know, mayhem being caused when some of these major raids are being conducted. Um, the Pope eventually even has to intervene with the Scots at some time to try to persuade them to curb their ways in the way of their fighting, which seemed about a hundred years behind the cultural norms 
that the Normans had brought in, they were still enslaving people long after, um, you know, the Normans had brought in, you know, you know exchanging prisoners and, and, and that sort of respect, codes, codes of chivalry. Uh, there was never a chivalrous order in Scotland, for example. So, um, from an English perspective, these were really barbarians. And, you know, they cause huge fear in the northern counties, Cumberland, um, Cumbria rather than Northumberland, and even down into Yorkshire and, and uh, Lancashire. You have, we have Scarborough being attacked, York, of course, uh, all across the northern counties suffered periodically from, English, from Scottish raids. And uh, this persisted even after the Wars of Independence. If one looks at, we're coming up at the moment, the 500th anniversary of Flodden, um, it was part of uh, a, a period of major Scottish incursions, most of which went wrong um, into England, and um, some quite major battles were fought uh, in that period. Flodden, which was a huge defeat for the Scots, King James V was killed. A Solway Moss was a huge Scottish army, was routed, just, just south of the border. And then the last major battle between the two countries at Pinky Clue um, uh, on the 1st of 4th, that was another complete disaster for the Scots in 1547. So um, for all their belligerence, they weren't necessarily particularly successful. Um, where they were successful tended to be in the resilience, coping with disaster, refusing to accept occupation and continuing to work sometimes with French allies, French aid, um, and certainly the capacity of English kings to be distracted by either problems internally or problems across the channel. Sure. So part of the perception of, of why in England, certainly, the Scots are seen as, as or were seen as particularly um, uh, ferocious warriors, uh, must surely come from the fact that they were continually rebelling against, well, not rebelling against, fighting against the English and then rebelling against the idea of a United Kingdom, lastly. Um, and I suppose the Jacobite story must be a big part of that, that that, that must be a big player in, in why we think of, of the Scots as particularly... Uh, well, 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 very much so. And um, although the Jacobites recruited all across Scotland, uh, they, their, the final army in the 45 was known as the Highland Army. Uh, the clans were to the fore. Uh, the Highland Charge was still a very effective short-range battlefield tactic. It usually involved, you know, firing a volley first and then charging, and if the lay of the land was helpful, as it was at Killycrankie, uh, then you could overwhelm uh, government troops relatively quickly, and it was a short, sharp, decisive tactic uh, and a very ferocious thing to face. Um, on the other hand, if they chose the ground badly, the troops were tired, and if the English had all their artillery in place as they had, uh, English and Scots had at Clutton, uh, then uh, the results could be utterly catastrophic. Um, but it take, did take a while before Clutton occurred. So is, is, is the story of, of Scottish military history skewed towards the Highlands because we tend to think of the soldiers as, as bekilted and, and, and waving claymores and such like? Well, it's, it's, more, it's more important even than that, because, of course, uh, after the debacle at Culloden, uh, which was as much a civil war in Scotland as it was an English-Scottish war, um, there was a period of romanticisation of the Highlands, which gets underway with Sir Walter Scott in a very big way, of talking about the, you know, the lost cause of the Jacobites, not ever suggesting it could come back, but by by romanticising 
the experiences of the Highlands, um, bringing back an acceptance of the Highlands as um, an integral part, indeed a revered part of, of Scotland. And of course, that was building on the readiness of Highlanders to serve in the British Army. Even ex-Jacobites join in huge numbers to fight in North America, in some cases hopefully trying to get their estates back from a grateful Hanoverian government. They fight in North America, they fight again, of course, in prodigious numbers in the French Napoleonic Wars, where the Scots are serving well above their um, proportion of the population, and particularly so from the Highlands. So the Highlands have made this huge effort, which Scott capitalises on, and that very famous visit to Edinburgh of King George IV, the first Hanoverian monarch to visit Edinburgh. This is an extravaganza of tartan. All the great landowners are done up in tartans. They'll have to find tartans um, to appear. And it's a you know, clan nostalgia. Uh, this tartan extravaganza is put on for for George IV. And this is you know, one of the focal points of what's sometimes called the Highlandism of the Scottish uh, soldier. Um, and it becomes re uh, reinforced with the reforms of 1881, which not only preserve all the Highland regiments and restore the kilt in many cases to them, but also introduce elements of Highland dress to the lowland regiments which have never worn tartan trues or doublets or carried claymores before. Um, but this had now become iconic of Scottish identity. And this is very much a tribute to the successes of the Highland soldiers. You think of Balaclava, the thin red line. Um, you think of them charging at uh, Tel El Kabir. Um, all sorts of battles in the empire in which the Scots are to the fore. And this is partly, of course, propaganda by themselves because they make sure they're posing for battle artists thereafter and advising them and on, on items of dress and deportment and all the rest. It's partly they've got a good story to tell. You know, they are valiant soldiers and they, they are very often in, in used as, as stormtroops in the Indian Mutiny, for example, as well as at, at the Crimea. So they've got a good story to tell. They make a point of telling it. And it's often said that one of the distinctive features of Scottish soldiering is the, you know, the, you know, how much they write about it as much as the fighting. Um, and the way in which this is accepted in you know, Victorian Britain, uh, and particularly Victorian Scotland, as an icon of the you know, Scottish identity, burgeoning Scottish identity within the Union. Okay. You, you alluded to this just, just then, but... Um, what were the reasons why Scots came to serve in such great numbers and with such obviousness in, in the British and Imperial armies? Well, the, the obviousness is, is evident by the fact that the British army allows the Highland regiments to wear kilts, carry Highland weapons like claymores, uh, have bagpipes, which are quite expensive, you know, kicking the people out. Um, and they're, they're distinctive and so they're distinctive to friend and foe. And that distinctiveness uh, is perhaps comes its apogee at the Battle of Waterloo, where you know, nearly all the paintings of Waterloo include Scots Highlanders somewhere, mm. um, uh, even although arguably you know, the Irish made as much of a contribution, if not more, than, than the Scots did. So there's no, there's no problem about their... You can't miss them. And for painters like Lady Butler, you know, this was marvellous. They were so pictorial, as she said. 
And so, you know, they were very much to the fore, you know, in khaki, when, when eventually the British armies in khaki, the only thing that's colourful about um, a, a war print tends to be the kilt. And that sort of thing. So the image element is, is straightforward. In terms of actual serving, um, uh, there's there are a number of factors. There's certainly not just volunteering for the sake of it. Um, uh, the Scots, in certainly in the French and Revolutionary Wars and Napoleonic Wars, have a range of alternative military options. They can serve in the militia. They can serve in the local yeomanry. They can serve in fencibles, which are uh, forces retained for, for home defence. They don't have to serve in the regular army. Some of them serve in the navy. There's 70%, 7% of Nelson's force at Trafalgar or something with Scots. Um, so they have a lot of options. Um, and the regular army isn't the only one. And, of course, some Scottish regiments are so short of Scottish recruits, they have to recruit in England. Mm -hmm. And one of the features all the way through our book has been the, the recurrent dependence at times of Highland regiments on recruits from the industrial belt in Scotland and very often recruits from England and Ireland. And of course, in the modern day, you've got Fijians serving the Black Watch. So there is a recruiting shortfall there um, where they're competing with the attractions of migration. Uh, they're, they're competing with the attractions of better employment where they can get it in Scotland and almost anywhere even the worst-paid agricultural job in Caithness um, in the late 19th century is better paid than the, than the regular army. So you, the, the army had, had work cut out to recruit. And it must be said in the late 19th century, when many of the magnates, you know, the Gordons and the Argyles and the like, were raising these regiments and were being paid healthily in terms of commissions and all the rest uh, for doing so, there was elements of coercion. Um, there were certainly, you know, tenants being forced to enlist or else they're, you know, they might forfeit their, their tenanted, uh, tenanted state, states. So, um, uh, you know, there was this sort of, there are elements of compulsion here, even within a voluntary army. You know, that said, you know, there's a large number of Scots respond at this time, far larger than their um, uh, proportion of the population, um, and that's particularly so in the Highlands. But, you know, that proportion can't be sustained over such a long military period. And it's interesting that by the early 19th century in the war, six Scottish regiments are required to, to uh, abandon the kilt because it's thought to be a deterrent to recruiting in England. Ah, right, okay. So, um, and th many of those regiments spend the next 70 years campaigning to recover the kilt as, as a badge of Scottishness and, and identity, and most of them get it back, of course. So, just, just moving the story on in, in conclusion, do, w does, that, does that theme carry through into the 20th century and the, and the, and the global conflicts that Britain became involved in there? Yes, yes it does. I mean, the Scots have a very uh, significant role to play in both world wars, um, and it's a developing role. And one of the features of our book is we say that Scots adapt to warfare as, as warfare changes. Um, there's a lot of Scottish women get engaged in war in the 20th century in all sorts of support occupations. Scotland becomes an ideal training ground, particularly north of the Great Glen, uh, 
for all sorts of covert operations. The SOE, or m many of them are trained up there. Many of the commandos are trained up there in a big, big commando memorial in Spean Bridge. Um, Scotland's also a key base for the Navy, Scapa Flow. Uh, it's a key base in the Second World War for the Royal Air Force, with a whole string of RAF bases all around the northern perimeter. And of course, those RAF bases um, have an even more daunting task in the Cold War, facing long-range bombers uh, come, you know, regularly patrolling over the UK from the Soviet Union. So you know, Scotland was very much at the frontier as a country in terms of defending the United Kingdom uh, from northern threats. So, in that sense, there's development. Um, there's also a readiness to develop in different formations. A lot of the tradition in Scotland has been associated with regiments, Blackwatch, Argyll, Southern Highlands and like. Well, in these two big wars, they're now fighting in brigades and divisions far more often. And you've got things like the 51st Highland Division, which is formed in the First World War and again in the Second World War. Four big Scottish divisions are actually forged in both wars, and the Scots developed their military identities uh, in connection with, the, with larger formations as well as the more famous smaller battalions. Uh, so, so that's a, another feature of development. Um, and of course you've got Scots involved in all sorts of other things too. The foundation of the SES is by a Scotsman. Much of Britain's military intelligence, you've had, British, uh, you've had Scotsmen involved in it um, uh, from, from their inception of the Special Intelligence Service. Um, so, you know, the Scots and indeed things like development of radar is done up in Dundee. So there's a whole range of things the Scots turn their hands to when they get chance in times of war. And, uh, you know, so this is part of the ongoing tradition um, uh, that, that would, would occur. And come the Cold War, of course, you've then got the bases, the big submarine bases at Holy Lock and Faz Lane, um, where the major part of the British deterrent uh, is being based. I mean, it does arouse some local controversy. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, this is another feature of Scotland's utility as a military base and a military training ground uh, for um, all sorts of different purposes. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio 
and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So that was Edward Spears and the book A Military History of Scotland, edited by him, Jeremy Crang and Matthew Strickland, is published shortly by Edinburgh University Press. You can read a feature on this subject in the June issue of BBC History Magazine, which is on sale now in the UK. Malcolm Chase is Professor of Social History at the University of Leeds. He's currently writing a book called 1820, Stress and Stability in the UK, which, as you can probably guess, is taking its focus on the single year, 1820. The first question I asked him was, why is 1820 in particular worth honing in on? I think 1820 is fascinating for a number of reasons, not least because it raises quite acute questions about how the United Kingdom hangs together peacefully in a period of great political dislocation. Uh, Many people will be familiar with the Peterloo Massacre of August 1819 in Manchester when the local yeomanry charged a demonstration and killed, well, there's a huge debate about the figures, but around 20 people with about 450 or more, including women and children, seriously injured. And it's how Britain reacts to that, how the peace is kept, if you like, how political radicals and oppositional forces react to the measures that the government takes after Peterloo, some of them very repressive, that I think provided an interesting case study There's a further dimension, though, which is that this is a year of European revolution. Um, Everybody now thinks about the revolutions of 1848. But in 1820, there were revolutions in Spain, Portugal, Italy. The heir to the French throne was assassinated. There was a very real sense in the British government, some of whom, one of whom, Prime Minister Lord Liverpool, had actually been present in 1789 in Paris when the Bastille was stormed. There was a very real sense in government that Britain might be on the brink of revolution. And presumably the events of Peterloo and the the year before would have uh, augmented that view, would have have magnified that perception. I mean, Peterloo Peterloo is one of those events on which history turns. It becomes a great mobilising focus for radical politics. It's still the case, even in the 1880s, that the last surviving people who'd been present at Waterloo were brought out for celebrations for the Third Reform Act in 1884. So it, it, it dominates the political landscape in Britain. So is, is 1820 really all about 1819 then, and about the aftermath to that event in Manchester? Not completely, and there's two reasons for that. One is because of the background of European Revolution, which I've already mentioned, and the other is because of this extraordinary unprecedented episode in 1820 when the new king George IV who's just come to the throne having reigned as Prince Regent during the last years of George III. George IV's first act when he comes to the throne is to seek to divorce his wife Queen Caroline and the cause of Queen Caroline a divorce being sought on the grounds of Uh, adultery, which is a bit rich coming from George IV, who never made any secret whatsoever 
about his mistresses and his own um, relaxed attitude to uh, personal relationships. The cause of Queen Caroline becomes a huge popular campaign around which everybody rallies. Uh, many women rally around her because they see her as the uh, wrongly persecuted uh, victim of male hypocrisy. Many political radicals come to her cause because while it may be risky to be um, campaigning for justice for the victims of Peterloo, campaigning for the rights of an aggrieved queen is, you know, can be presented as an act of patriotism. And many of the political opposition to the Tory government, members of the Whig Party, use this in effect as a political stalking horse um, to, to, to mobilise against a, a government which is actually pretty popular and on its own terms doing a good job. Uh, the, 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 just on that George IV, he, he, he simply hated Caroline. Is that the only reason why he, he was... He was yes, when he was first... It was an arranged marriage um, foisted on him by George III in return for George III meeting his son's debts, which were considerable. On the first meeting, Caroline, he's supposed to have nearly fainted and called for brandy and smelling salts. Uh, he disliked her for a whole range of reasons, personal hygiene appearance, lack of cultivation, sensibility as he saw it. Um, but I think most of all, he associated her with an episode in his life he wanted to forget about being, you know, entirely really still the, the, the son of a father who was sort of Hanoverian, Germanic, disciplinarian. Uh, you know, he felt manoeuvred into this marriage and... Uh, it wasn't something that he'd wanted. He had indeed already contracted an illegal marriage to Mrs Fitzherbert before he married Caroline. So there were all manner of reasons why he wanted her out of the way. Okay. So what, in your view, was on the, was on the mind of the collective people in 1820? Were, were they focused on sort of the shock at what happened at Peterloo, on the drama of the, of the, of the you know, the, 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 the divorce proceedings, or on the possibility of rebellion being exported from, from Europe? What was, what was uppermost in the, in, the, in, the, in the fears of the people? I think, surveying the year briefly, what's uppermost initially are the repressive policies of the government, the so-called Six Acts, rushed through Parliament uh, around Christmas time in 1819 to close down freedom of speech, assembly and publishing by radicals. Then there's a broader context that the winter of 1819-20 is one of the most severe on record, and this goes alongside, therefore, uh, economic depression, high unemployment, um, suffering and want more generally. Uh, then in March the Spain and Portuguese revolutions come into play at almost the same time as the Cato Street conspiracy in London to assassinate the British cabinet collectively on block uh, is exposed. And then just as the country's, as it were, taking stock of revolutions abroad and uh, this sensational plot in London, uh, you have two serious incidents of what are in effect uprisings around Easter in the West Riding of Yorkshire, centred on Huddersfield, and in Scotland, centred on the Clydeside area. Things quieten down somewhat after that 
for a couple of months, but then the Queen Caroline affair really comes into play when she returns to Britain in June and divorce proceedings are immediately uh, initiated in the House of Lords. Get to September and the whole of normal parliamentary government has ground to a halt. The House of Commons doesn't even sit between September and uh, November, mid-November, except on one or two days. Uh, the whole of the political process grinds to a halt. Uh, it is easier, really, to identify places in, certainly in England, and to a considerable extent in Britain as a whole, that don't have mass demonstrations in support of Queen Caroline than it is to identify the places that do. It is an extraordinary event that seems to bring the whole country together in an almost carnivalesque expression of hostility to the current government. So does it, in a strange way, the, all the drama and the, and the interest in, that, in, that, in those divorce proceedings, in a strange way, sort of stave off the threat of a, of a major social revolt because people have a, a focus on something that's that's not quite what they might have been focusing on before? I, I think that's, that's a valid interpretation. You could see the Caroline Affair as a safety valve. Uh, it's very interesting that the popular demonstrations are most apt to become violent in those places where local authorities try to stop them. Where the local establishment just sort of step back and let things run their natural course, then very often there's, there's little incidence of violence beyond the odd breaking of windows because people hadn't put lamps or candles in their windows to illuminate to show their support for the Queen. Um, so yes, I, mean, I think there is a sense in which it's a safety valve. It's also a severe test, however, of the government, which puts its political reputation on the line over the issue of um, supporting the King in his seeking the divorce case. And that hugely complicates, as it were, the political arithmetic around the House of Commons and the government's strength. Eventually, the government abandons the divorce bill, despite the protests of George IV, when it realises that it will never get a majority in the House of Commons in favour of a divorce. Uh, had it pushed that point, the government would have been thrown out. So does the year end with any more social harmony than when it began? I'm inclined to the view that it does. I think that Caroline provides a rallying point around whom both established political opposition, the weak party in other words, and extra-parliamentary radical forces can come together. And that is important in terms of lining up the parliamentary opposition with opposition to the government in the country. If you look at the situation at the beginning of 1820, it's not just the Tory Prime Minister Lord Liverpool and his supporters who are saying this country is on the cusp of revolution, we are facing a huge crisis, we cannot presume on the loyalty of the population. The Weak political opposition, privately among themselves, are saying the same thing. And they are no more confident of being able to carry the mood of the country with them than are the Tories. At the end of the year, the effect of Caroline is to bring uh, extra-parliamentary radicals into um, 
an uneasy alliance, but an, un an alliance nonetheless with the Whig parliamentary opposition. Now, that has profound and important consequences for the history of Britain over the next 10 to 15 years, because it is that popular alliance of radicalism and Whiggism that secures the Great Reform Act in 1832, and arguably helps keep extra-parliamentary political activity in an age without democracy somewhat in check. Um, it's an interesting point. You, you, you've sort of moved the, the story on to talk about what happened off, but you've, you, you, your book presumably will focus specifically on, on the year 1820. So does, is, that, um, is that a difficult thing for a historian to do, to focus? I mean, quite a few books have been written that are year-specific in, in the last few years. It seems like a, a, a trend for people to do it. But that, does that mean that it makes it more difficult for you to do what a historian you know, is naturally trained to do, to look at the long story? Yes, it is a challenge, and um, I hated writing my conclusion. I really found it difficult. Um, history is untidy, it doesn't come neatly packaged, and it, you know, there's a, it's a certain degree of artifice involved in creating a neat um, ending to... To, to, to a book when it's a completely arbitrary chronological point. And in fact, I didn't do it, I have to be honest. In my conclusion, I looked ahead to one or two points of longer-term significance, like the popularity of the Whig Party, but my epilogue, actually, is the coronation of George IV, which takes place the following summer in 1821, um, when there is the, uh, on the face of it, very dangerous moment when Queen Caroline turns up at Westminster Abbey for the coronation and is rejected and refused admission. Does this then lead to popular revolt, to weak politicians storming out of the coronation in her support? No. She's completely marginalised and isolated. And one of the challenges that I've tried to answer in the book is to, uh, is to explain why that should have changed, how the situation of this woman over the space of a mere seven months could have so dramatically altered and what are the processes underpinning that okay going against my my last question uh uh i, I can think of lots of years uh, in around your your period of expertise that might be seen as sort of pivotal important years 1832 you've already mentioned maybe 1789 obviously is, is quite important maybe 1807 for, for slavery and such like 1820 perhaps doesn't often get gets cited in, in lists of important years. Should it be in a list of important years? Yes, I think it should. Um, I, I think the European revolutionary dimension is important. Uh, although we put a lo lot of emphasis on Peterloo in 1819, it's what happens afterwards that really needs explaining and teasing out. And I think it... I don't think anybody's ever sat down totted up the pages, but if I was a betting man, I would... I'd be prepared to wager that more attention has been played, paid to Queen Caroline and the divorce case than almost any other episode in early 19th century British history. And the danger, one of the real reasons why I decided to write the book was that I thought we were missing the bigger picture in 1820. But also we weren't understanding the importance of the Caroline affair either because we were seeing, as it were, in isolation from the broader context. 
so no 1820 definitely well i would say this wouldn't i but uh, i do think that 1820 raises in a particular acute form some of the key issues about the nature of early 19th century society uh, as well as encompassing within its 12 months some episodes of very striking um well uniqueness in many instances it's the only occasion uh, before the 20th century in which there's been any question around a royal divorce case it's the only occasion on which um there's been an attempt to assassinate the entire cabinet you know spencer percival the prime minister was assassinated in 1812 by a, a, a lone gunman who was mentally deranged uh, the, the plot to assassinate the whole cabinet it's an extraordinary episode or those easter risings that i referred to um you know some people talk about the scottish uprising of, of 1820 it it's a pivotal moment in the evolution of scottish national identity uh, i haven't even mentioned here what's going on in ireland it's it's a year of uh, in which british authority in ireland is severely challenged in 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 the west by the ribbon movement as so called so there's a there's a great deal going on and what is going on is raising i think the very interesting and important questions about british society mm. in the early 19th century generally what what we need to know is is how close you think britain was in 1820 to having a revolution how close it was to society breaking down well despite all i've said to the effect that this is an extraordinary year i think ultimately britain doesn't come that close in some ways the challenge to me as a historian of this 12 month period is is actually to examine the conditions of stability what it is that holds society together i think it's of pivotal importance that the parliamentary opposition the whigs which starts the year um almost as lacking in popular support as the government uh, manages to achieve a considerable degree of popularity by the end of it i think it's important also to point to the way in which whilst central government is deeply unpopular loathed in fact by many people the local state local establishments local authority uh, manages to hold society together at the micro level it's very striking that a succession of small reforms that don't really get noticed in the textbooks uh, around 1820 mark a quite significant step forward in the nature of local government and those reforms have the effect of bringing in people who are outside of the political establishment into the process of government i think that's a key consideration okay last question just to conclude I, i think our listeners would want to know we talked about uh, caroline and what happened to her on, in 1820 and you've issued a challenge to people to count up the number of reference to him which I, I hope our podcast listeners will take up uh, but but what happens to caroline in the end does she does she end up in in a terrible state um it's a very poignant story she is ejected from which well, is not ejected she's not even allowed into westminster abbey and within 12 weeks she's died the popular view was that she died of a broken heart uh the last big demonstration in her support 
uh, is around the issue of what route her coffin should take through the capital. She lived in Hammersmith in West London and the government was rather hoping that en route to Harwich, because she was going back to her German homeland to be buried, the government was rather hoping that the uh, funeral cortege would take a circuitous route round London that would keep it out of all the trouble spots. And her radical supporters put up one last show of defiance, really, to ensure that the, her coffin is escorted with full pomp and ceremony through the middle of the city. Um, and she is died and is practically forgotten thereafter until she's rediscovered, in effect, in the mid-20th century by historians who, who, who like the look of a feisty woman capable apparently of almost destabilising a government and uh, driving uh, a male monarch to distraction. That was Martin Chase of the University of Leeds. Look out for his book on 1820, which will hopefully be published in the next year or so. That's your lot for this week. Next time round, we will be considering the reigns of two queens, Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II. In the meantime, do take a look at our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries, and a whole lot more. Plus, remember we're on digital formats. Kindle and iPad can be found on the Amazon and Apple newsstand sites. And if you don't like that, then you can, of course, still buy the printed product. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. <laughs>